This is a special episode of Effing Shakespeare, recorded in collaboration with the 2021 AWP Conference and Book Fair. We're thankful to be the official podcast for AWP for a second year and have invited a gallery of guests that you don't want to miss out on. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to bring you interviews of amazing writers sharing about their amazing work. Enjoy. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers. For writers. We are here with Jeffrey Colvin today. Jeffrey Colvin is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy, Harvard, and Columbia, where he earned an MFA in fiction. He's also a member of the National Book Critics Circle and is assistant editor at Narrative Magazine. We first met up with Jeffrey when the pandemic hit, but a scheduling snafu bungled our getting to talk about his stunning novel, Africaville. So we're especially grateful that he made time for us here in the virtual world all these months later. Jeffrey, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Kate. Yeah. So Africaville, it's a genealogy of sorts, it follows several family trees as they intertwine branches in an enclave in Halifax, Nova Scotia called Woods Bluff and then later named Africaville as it grew and combined with other settlements. I so enjoyed the journey of reading this book. I wonder, it's such an expansive book and I read that it, it was 20 years in the making. So I, I wonder if we could just start out by maybe you covering some of that ground that you covered in the 20 years researching and writing this book. Well, certainly. One of the questions I often get uh, is, uh, you're a, a man from Alabama. How did you come to write a novel about Canada? <laughs> and uh, usually I respond that, well, you know, Africaville is about certainly set partly in Canada, but it's certainly about more than that. It's about three generations, as you said, of one family, the sea boats. And it takes readers from uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, to Montreal, to Vermont, and then down to the Deep South, principally Alabama and Mississippi. And as it does so, it covers the tumultuous events of the early part of the 20th century, all the way up to the 1990s. And uh, some of the issues raised are passing, this idea of someone who is light enough, to, a black person, light enough to pass this for white, those kinds of issues, family, uh, cross-racial relationships, and also the meaning of home, since the book is called Africaville. And I began writing the novel really in the 2000s. I was working on a series of short stories set in Alabama along the route taken by the marchers for civil rights, voting rights, in the 1960s from Selma to Montgomery. Now, I have a grandmother who raised a family in rural Alabama, so I knew something about these communities and I was wondering about the people who lived in these communities. We knew about the leaders, Martin Luther King and others, but what about the people who lived along the route? Did they participate in the march? And if so, why not? What did they feel about what was happening to them at the time? And so I began writing these short stories. And uh, as I was writing the stories, I uh, went back to visit my grandmother. And after a while, the community that she lived in was no longer there. And so by the time I got to the 80s, the community where she raised a family was no longer there. And so she, that community was gone. And I began to notice a lot of other communities that had disappeared throughout the South. And then in 2001, I read an article in the New York Times about a town called Africville, 
mm-hmm. that was just north of uh, Halifax. And in this community, it was in the, in the news in the 1960s when over the objection of the community residents, the uh, city of Halifax went in, forced everyone out of their homes and tore down all the, the houses. And so as I was looking at the BBC did a huge film about this and mm-hmm. I was lis- listening to some of the interviews and a lot of the stories that the uh, residents told about their community were very similar to the same stories I had heard being told about the community in, in Alabama, including my grandmother's community. And so I had an immediate connection I felt to what was happening in Halifax. And so then I thought, well, you know, that is enough for a novel. So out of that, uh, became the genesis of the novel uh, that I call Africaville. And so I began to do research on Africaville. And actually, I'll talk about the way in which I went about that as well. If you'd like to hear that, I started out with- I sure would, yeah. Yeah, I started out with this idea of, well, how did the community come to be? That was one of the things I was interested in and used it in my novel. For example, principally, my community of Africaville came out of three principal uh, sources. One was Blacks coming up to Canada with with their whites during the Revolutionary War. As you know, many of the whites who supported um, the British brought their slaves up to Canada. And some of the slaves settled in uh, parts of uh, middle of Canada, but also some went to the Atlantic coast as well, including Nova Scotia. So that group of slaves and their descendants became one part of my fictional Africaville. The other parts were people who came up during the Underground Railroad. There are some estimates that about 100,000 people came north with the Underground Railroad. We know about a lot of them settling in the northern part of the United States, in the northern cities, but some of them also went north to Canada. Some estimates are that about a third of them went to Canada. And of course, some of those ended up in Halifax. So they were the second group. And then the third group, well, the other group that I sort of didn't mention was the um, War of 1812, in which the British and and a lot did. And some people estimate that the largest manumission of slaves prior to the current time, was 1960s, was the manumission of slaves during the War of 1812. But the final group that made up Africaville was a group from Jamaica, of the Caribbean. In the 1790s, the Jamaicans were really in constant war with their British. And so in 1792, the British rounded up a group of what they called troublemakers, put them on three ships, and shipped them off to Halifax with the intention of sending them on to Sierra Leone. And so this group, out of these three groups, Blacks coming up during the two wars, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, Blacks coming up as part of the Underground Railroad, and then Blacks coming into Canada from the Caribbean made up the uh, my group that made up Africaville. And so the matriarch of the family, the Seaboat family, a woman named Cathella Seaboat, her parents were part of the Caribbean influx to, to Nova Scotia. And then the next generation there came out of her relationships with a young man whose parents came up from the South. So you had a, the sort of a mixture of both the Caribbean and the Southern. Those are the, the sort of the roots of this seaboat family that becomes the three generations that make up the novel. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. Kath Ella is fascinating. Etienne is fascinating. I, I loved all the characters. I wonder, like, at what point did you have to say to yourself, Jeffrey, I have too many people. Like, I have to stop adding. A thousand pages. Yeah. A thousand novel. <laughs> well, at, at one point, it was six or 700 pages. 
and there was an actual, and and there were also a number of subplots in the novel as well. But over the course of working on the book, I would, you know, take some subplots out, put them back in, take them out. It went through a whole process of doing that and also cutting characters in the book as well. And so there was a period of paring down the book that happened over the course, probably in the last, say, 10 years of working on the book. I did a lot of paring down. I figured sort of let sort of let my creativity flow and see what comes out of it. That was sort of the first part of the generative part of the working on the novel. But at some point, as you correctly <laughs> stated, I did have to cut back. So I did do a lot of cutting back, both when I worked on the novel and also after it was purchased. I had two editors, actually. The book was purchased by HarperCollins USA and at mm-hmm. the same time also by HarperCollins Canada. They gave me one editorial letter. Uh, the book wound up being called <laughs> Africville in Canada. I saw that. Up there sort of know the, the community, but I figured since it's a fictional, I called it Africaville in the U.S. That's exciting. And then it got two beautiful covers. You have a variety to choose from. Yes. <laughs> well, could we hear an excerpt? I would love to hear it. Sure. I'm going to read from the opening of the book because that will give you a sense of how I, you asked about the research that went into the book. I think it gives a sense of how the research about the communities was um, incorporated into the novel. This is the opening, it's called Dog Trot Fever. Nova Scotia, 1918. Newborns are never afflicted with the malady. The swollen tongue, the reddish throat, the raw cough, seem to afflict, to afflict only babies older than six months. By the spring, in the village situated on the small knuckle-shaped peninsula just north of Halifax, all five of the stricken babies have now developed a high fever. Having no luck with sweet milk and lemon bitter, worried mothers administer castor oil mixed with camphor, then a tea of beer's root seeped with beech ash and clover. When desperate, they even place a few charms under the mattresses of the beds where the stricken babies lie crying. Nothing works. In mid-April, with three more babies now suffering from the malady, health department officials visit the village, their faces frozen even before they have examined a single new case. Why our children, several mothers standing in the yard of one house want to know, Hadn't Halifax already given enough babies in the fire that leveled 10 square blocks of the city months before when the munitions ship exploded in the harbor? Then again, those had been white babies. No colored babies had died in that explosion. Was it now Woods Bluff's turn to lose infants? And if so, how many? Five, 10, all 22? The following week, after two of the feverish babies die, the mothers turn to the grandmothers, though many are leery of this option. Already, several grandmothers have suggested that since the home remedies haven't worked, and since neither nurse nor doctor has useful medicines, the afflicted infants must be saddled with bad luck, must be bad luck babies. It is an expression the mothers haven't heard since they were children, though the fear of having a bad luck baby has terrorized mothers on the bluff as far back as 1790. That was a year the first groups of cabins sprang up across the bluff, displacing the fox, hare, and moose that ran through the thick Christmas ferns and sheep laurel. Back then, 
when no medicine could reinvigorate a baby whose body had begun to show the outlines of bones, smothering was sometimes recommended. Take no action and bad luck might infect the entire village. Yet several mothers are unconvinced that deceased infants are bad luck babies. And even if the now suffering babies are saddled with bad luck, who's to say those old tales of smothering are true? Had anyone actually seen a mother place a blanket or a pillow over a child's face? And more importantly, for these new cases, by what evidence will the diagnosis be made? The grandmothers had ready answers. For several descendants of the Virginian who came up to Virginia to Nova Scotia in 1772 as a messenger in the British Army, a feverish baby had to be put to sleep if the father had recently had a limb severed above the knee or elbow. Death was also imminent if the baby's fever came during the same month as the mother's birthday. But the granddaughter of the Congolese woman who in 1785 dressed as a man sailed into Halifax Harbor on a ship out of Lisbon, Portugal, a feverish baby had to be mothered if the newborn was smaller than a man's hand. And for the largest group of grandmothers, those descended from the nearly 200 Jamaicans who landed in Halifax Harbor in 1788 after being expelled by British soldiers from the island villages for fomenting rebellion, a feverish baby's fate was sealed if the child coughed up blood during the same month a traveling man arrived on your stoop selling quill turpentine, goat leather, or gunpowder. Hadn't such a vendor made the rounds in Woods Bluff the month before? Why continue to nurse such a child? Death already had a square toe on the baby's throat. It was only a matter of days a week maybe if the baby were a girl. Goodness. Tell us the short sketch of getting from that scene to, I wanted to move on to um, Etienne, who was little Omar and then later becomes Etienne and his son Warner. That relationship was really, really interesting to me. He's stuck between two worlds where he can pass, as you said earlier, you know, they're in many cases for white and yet struggles with his identity. And then he all but disregards his family back home in, in Woods Bluff, which he doesn't even consider Woods Bluff really his home. What did you hope to accomplish with that relationship in particular with that father and his son? Well, you said, Etienne, one of the things that Africa Fail was about was trying to explore this idea of what forces might pull subsequent generations away from their home town of Africaville and what forces might pull generations toward Africaville. And so mm. uh, there were all kinds of social forces acting on both Cathella, who wanted to go out and see the wider world. I mean, that was so one of the things she wanted to do once she uh, grew up and uh, she moved to Montreal, as a matter of fact. but. She wanted to grow up. Her, her, so what was driving her was an idea to see what was happening out in the world. Mm-hmm. Her son, Etienne, decided, but she still, uh, Cathala still had some relationship with uh, Africaville, mainly because she knew a lot of people from her childhood. Some of them, many of them were still living. She didn't go back very often, but she did make one trip back with some complicated results, as you see in the book, <laughs> but she did do that. Etienne, mm-hmm. on the other hand, had other forces acting on him. There was, of course, the distance. He moved, he left Montreal and moved to Vermont and then down to Alabama. But he also had the ability to pass for white. And so the issue becomes, you know, this is a black village. 
and he grew up in the 60s, a time when being black, uh, the ability to pass for white had certain advantages. And so uh, in order to take some of the, he felt that in order to take some of those, to take, to take advantage of some of those advantages, he needed to pull away from any connection to uh, his hometown of Africaville. And of course, this, I wanted to explore what kinds of effects that this had on him as a character. I think that's one of the things about Etienne. And then later, Warner, who is, th thinks of himself as white, finds out about Africaville and then tries to get reconnected to Africaville. So, and, and in essence, Etienne's journey is one of internal, once he makes a decision to pass, what kind of effect is this going to have on him? So I want to explore that internal, the stuff that was happening to him internally, in terms of, even then when Warner grew up, he tries to get back to Africaville. His is more of an external journey. How do I do that? But of course, the people in the community still living want nothing to do with Warner because his father was so estranged from the community. Right. But he has to fight that and, and sort of fight for his own place in that community. And so and then his, that was really he, what was happening with Etienne and Warner. Yeah, it was great. And then he, the other part of that plot is his, is it his great grandmother? I'm sorry. Yes, great grandmother. Uh, yes, his grandmother who's in prison in Alabama that he tries to then rectify or come back to her and some and attempt to get to know her and then she doesn't want for different reasons it it was a it's quite the saga um and and a beautiful story i'm so happy it's out in the world i was thinking about your book a lot especially because i just finished the book the craft book called craft in the real world by matthew Celesis or Celesis. i'm not sure how to pronounce his name and one of the things he's trying to do is unpack the ways that we have come to teach writing in traditional or old school MFA programs, where often, you know, the critique of the group is, it's very much colored by the, the mix of the audience. And, and typically, you know, I was in a MA program that was very white. Um, and I know lots of MFA programs are, are taught by predominantly white folks. And back to Matthew, Matthew Slace's book, he's saying we need to reconsider how we teach writing. Who is the audience that if we have a predominantly white audience that will color the way p writers of color approach their work. And so I'm curious as to what kinds of things you were considering when you sat down to write with your audience in mind. And if that changes when you go out to sell the book with, with, you know, Amistad or with your publisher in, in Canada, if those sorts of considerations were, were part of how you took it on as a writer. I'm also curious, sorry, I'm curious if you wrote any part of this during your MFA. Oh, okay. Well, I'm trying to think whether I, some of the short stories I think I, I wrote during the MFA. I wrote okay. a story called 65, which is actually set during the Salem Montgomery March. So yeah, some of the some of the stories I wrote during the MFA, yes, but most of it I wrote post MFA. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting question about audience because one of the things I tried to do in the book was to explore some of the things that I had lived. To me, writing is living, really, and so I want to explore some of the things that I lived. I hope, for example, that people sort of get some of the uh, things that you put in the novel, but I sort of did some of the things that I sort of knew about. For example, the name of the college where I went to school is called Payne Oglethorpe. 
my mother actually went to a junior college called Daniel Payne College. And Daniel Payne is a very famous uh, black educator and activist. And so, and also Oglethorpe was a very famous Georgia white man who uh, was also uh, had some very interesting and progressive ideas. And so I, I took things that I knew about it from my own life and my own sort of things that I just sort of knew about. Also things like from my reading, like Zora uh, Neale Hurston in her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, talks about God as being the man up in the sky with the square toes. Mm-hmm. And so in the, in the opening mm-hmm. of the book, when I say things like death had a square toe, and so uh, I'd like to think that my readers are both have, and also the civil rights work, the novel set during the 60s. And so I, I sort of think of the reader as being sort of multifaceted. One is which a reader has some knowledge of black history and black culture, uh, and also has read widely. And so would recognize some of those kinds of things. And also the other group are those that are very curious about some of the things they wanna read about. I do get emails from people. I think I get a lot more emails from people who on the curiosity side, who said, I've read this book and I've learned so much about certain things that I didn't know. I looked up some things. I know that Black folks were had, were in that great numbers in Canada, for example. That's a big mm-hmm. one that I get. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't know that either. Especially in Nova Scotia. <laughs> I did my own research. And so, and I also didn't know what the composition was. I thought that most of the Blacks in Canada would have been Underground Railroad. But mm-hmm. it turns out that a lot of them are really from the Caribbean. If you go into the major cities, that's where the majority of a lot of the Blacks are from. And so I learned a lot actually during the process as well. And so I do think that when I think of the, the readers who would read the book, I would say those are sort of two of the categories. One is people who read, read widely and have some knowledge of sort of Black history and Black culture in that, but also people who are just curious about uh, who read other kinds of writers. From, so that's sort of how, how I think about it when I was working on the book. Yeah, it was really interesting to me. I I would fall into both categories, I think. It did lead me to do some more research because I ended up going to the Africville Museum site and was reading their postings, and I think they had some videos, and, and it turns out that your research took you up there to the museum too, right? Yes, I actually, one of the things I, I went up about, oh my, so probably 20 years ago or around there, I went to walk the land. Get a sense of the actual, I walked around and sort of see, you know, how wide the community, how much space it took up. Uh, there was a park there when I got there, the park had already been built. And the museum wasn't there yet. And so the first time I went up, I did that, just sort of walking around, getting a feel for the land. I also talked to some people who were descendants of residents of Africville, including a young man who worked at the library, who gave me lots of information about mm. the community. And then I went up about two or three years ago to one of their community picnics, which is a very interesting experience. And I uh, talked to some people there. Along the way, I also talked to the woman on the cover of the book. I know she looks, she was 16 at the time. She actually lived in Africville. Uh, She's still alive. And I sort of talked to her, interviewed her, talked to her. So I've Mm -hmm. I've been talking to people both during the process of working on the book and also subsequent to that as well. And so, it was a very interesting process. One of the things that I, people find interesting about it is that this whole idea of, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the past years about who's allowed to tell what story. Mm-hmm. And so it comes up both in terms of, of uh, culture, you know, and also geography. Mm-hmm. I am not Canadian. And so, you know, I, uh, so I, I always had this tug of war between my own curiosity and wanting to stretch myself as a writer and also the pull of, uh, should I be telling the story of, that's why I called it Africaville when I changed the name of the book. 
I feel, you know, there have been so many uh, stories written about, there's a play, there was a BBC article about Africville. I see my book as a companion to that. Mm-hmm. And so, and also the people from Africville and their descendants are still telling their story. So I think that will continue to happen. And so as I said, my book, a companion to those stories, but it does come up. I at one point thought I'd write an article about how people respond to you when you, <laughs> you know, enter a new culture, including one that's geographic. I mean, we were all black, but I'm not, I wasn't from the community. So that was yeah. an interesting part of the process. I mean, that was I, a great essay. <laughs> Well, Jeffrey, I wish we had so many more minutes to talk to you, but thank you so much for your time today, and hopefully we can catch up again soon. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Wonderful. This has been a live recording of the Effing Shakespeare podcast by Bloomsday Literary at the 2021 AWP Conference and Book Fair. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin-Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Hulu. Our trusty and hardworking intern is Sanditi Sadev. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever podcasts are found.